0: Welcome back to the show, everyone. I'm your host, Aaron Lowe. And if this is your first episode and you're wondering what this whole thing is all about, well, I'll tell you. Every week, I find my head surgically attached to the body of a different friend and cinephile. Together, we are given a note containing a theme, sometimes specific and sometimes vague. Our job is then to pick a pair of movies that fit that theme and then watch and discuss. This is the Incredible Two Headed Podcast. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Welcome back to another week, and we've got another return guest host body this week. Coming back for the first time since the Christmas season is Corey Pulaski. Corey, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing great. How about you, Aaron?
0: Doing pretty good. Doing pretty good.
1: We're feeling groovy, and uh, you know, something's rotten in Denmark.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I'm doing. <laughs> I'm doing really well. I just watched rewatched one of these movies. It's a favorite, and I. I'm always in a good mood watching it. so I'm really looking forward to this discussion. I think it is gonna be a fun episode.
1: Totally agree. I also am in a great mood every time I watch either of these movies, so I'm really looking forward to this. This covers a lot of my favorite subjects.
0: Oh yeah, I mean, based on our last episode, um, I know in particular in particular one of these, I have a feeling you'll you'll have a lot of more insight into it than I will. But we'll get to that. We'll get to that. But before we get to any of the movies, like we're kind of uh, edging out of winter into spring, although it's getting warmer in the days, but still pretty cold at night for Southern California. But just how have you been doing in general? Like, what what are things like in your, your neighborhood, I guess? Well,
1: you know, uh, things have been going all right. I live in a pretty bustling area of town, so and you're starting to see more people come out of the woodwork a little bit, but you know, luckily everybody's masked up and everything. So we're following rules. And otherwise just keep been busy and you know, the warmer weather is welcomed. It never really gets too cold around here, but uh, you know, what with quarantine, I've been cultivating an indoor jungle as it were. So all of my plants are a little bit happier now and that makes me happy. So, you know, I'm in a good place.
0: We're in a not quite so bustling part of town. I mean, it's pretty busy. We're not out in the suburbs or anything. It's just kind of a quieter neighborhood, I think. Uh, But I'm still, I'm only going out really once every couple of weeks to do shopping. And then other than that, it's just some like going out for a walk almost every day with my my youngest. And we spend a couple of hours doing that. But otherwise we're just hanging out inside.
1: Yeah, I go out probably once a week for groceries, but it's just because, you know, I can only bring home as much as I can carry. And, uh, you know, I've been going out a little bit more recently, but, you know, not for fun. I'm starting to work again, which is nice. Just slow, small shifts here and there to re-oil the machine and figure out what these new software programs that I have to learn are and retraining and Basically just shaking off the cobwebs, but uh, it feels good to be reintegrated into society, even if it is just a little bit.
0: Maybe enough Yeah. (laughs) spending time in the the continually depressing real world. So why don't we kind of look at our note here, look at our theme, and talk about some fun movies. (laughs) Let's do it. Okay, so our note for this week is Shamlet. Shamlet.
1: Ah, Shamlet.
0: So let's take a break, and we'll be right back. We will be discussing it. Somewhere behind granite battlements,
1: beyond impenetrable gates, indoors, something evil is brewing, and it isn't Elsinore beer. Here, an unsuspecting Aris has become the innocent pawn of a diabolical genius. At his command, space-age superlasers that can
0: incinerate an entire metropolis. An army of deadly hockey warriors. At his fingertips, lots of beer. Just one more test, and then we're ready for the world. What fool dares stand in his way? I'm Bob McKenzie. This is my brother, Doug. How's it going, eh? Welcome to our movie. At last, television's Dave Thomas and Rick Moranis have just hit the great white screen. These are the adventures of Bob and Doug McKenzie, Strange Brew. Based on the popular SCTV characters created and played by Dave Thomas and Rick Moranis, Strange Brew follows the brothers Bob and Doug McKenzie as they stumble onto the basic plot of Hamlet taking place at a brewery where Paul Dooley has recently murdered his brother in order to gain control of the brewery and help enact Brewmeister Smith Max von Sido's plan to take over the world by placing a mind control drug in the beer. Now, this is I, I say this a lot on this, but this is a, f- a favorite movie. I have loved this since I was a freshman in high school. I remember the first time I saw this was my freshman year in high school. I was on the swim team. After every meet, we would have a party and at somebody's house. And, you know, there'd be party games and everything. People would just be hanging out. It's a high school party. But they'd also rent movies and just have movies playing. And I was even then the nerd that would just be sitting on the couch watching the movies and this was one of them somebody rented this and I loved it immediately I went out and rented it the next weekend um I think I I dubbed a copy so I had it just in my collection I watched it a lot I remember like how uproariously I was laughing the first time I saw this movie like so much of this just amused me in a way that like you you can't really like, you know, when you're when you're 14 and something is funny and you just like laugh until you can't breathe. That is my initial reaction to this movie. And I still watch it. I just showed it to my oldest daughter a few months ago. So it was kind of fresh in my mind, but I was still looking forward to watching this movie again in preparation of our discussion. It's just. It is for me just kind of a feel good movie, like I always enjoy watching it. But how about you? How What's your history with Strange Brew?
1: So Strange Brew is definitely one of the sillier movies uh, that I know of. Um, The first time I saw this movie, I must have been like, I was so young. I was like seven or eight years old. (laughs) Um, My older brother and I pretty routinely growing up would just come home from school and turn on Comedy Central. And in the middle of the day on Comedy Central would always be kind of like a like a b-rated film they would have movies that maybe were lesser known i guess more independent is what i'm trying to say and i remember strange brew being on multiple times growing up Uh, my brother and i to this day one of our favorite insults is hoser Uh, we love calling each other hoser because of this movie yeah, I just when I when I think of Strange Brew, I'm immediately jettisoned back to, you know, my living room growing up and, and watching old Comedy Central movies on syndication and just having a good time with my brother, which, you know, those times are few and far between because being so close in age, when we weren't laughing at movies, we were just simply tearing each, o- each other to shreds. So, you know, this is a this is a happy memory for me. And I was really excited when you when you chose it because well, for a bunch of reasons. Uh, number one is the nostalgia, obviously, and then number two, um, as you previously mentioned, the the plot of this movie is basically a loose interpretation of the shell of Hamlet. And I went to theater school. My my college major was theater. Um, and I know quite a bit about uh, Shakespeare and his works, so it's always fun rewatching it. You know, the older I get, and being able to draw the correlations between the two works, so I, I had a great time rewatching this. Honestly,
0: yeah. So when I saw the movie, like I like I said, I was uh, I was fourteen. I knew a little bit about Bob and Doug at the age. I wasn't like a big sctv fan but it was something that i would i just knew like i would run across it late night on nbc i think on the weekends and late night they would play some of the uh, episodes and they were in reruns of course by that time and then their song the 12 days of christmas you know that that was on mm-hmm. dr demento quite a bit of course yes and so i kind of knew who they were so i guess like we can just kind of jump into the movie the movie starts in in a very very bizarre way to me and i'll i'll circle around to why I think it's so bizarre, but it is Bob and Doug sitting in the Great White North set from SCTV, and they're introducing the movie, and then they start playing the movie, and it is a very cheap, like, Planet of the Apes-style sci-fi movie. It's post-apocalyptic. Everything is just, like, plastic taped to his costume and, uh, like, model a, a model van, being pulled on a string to look like it's flying. It, it's really silly. And then that film breaks and they're in a theater and people in the theater start getting really mad and, and the film breaks down and they're like rioting and yelling and Bob and Doug are in the theater watching the movie. And then they, they cause a scene and escape. And that's when the movie that we're about to follow starts. And this seems like it's almost another world from the rest of the movie, this moment, because Watching it, I'm kind of trying to decide, or not decide, but figure out what place Bob and Doug McKenzie have in this world, because they have a movie, a very big movie that people are lining up for, like it's having a pretty big premiere. They also have an album that everybody knows. So people know who Bob and Doug are. But then for the rest of the movie, they're these two anonymous schlubs living with their parents still and unemployed and just drinking all day.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I... I mean, I'd not, say not that,
0: not that you need realism. This movie is not going yeah. for realism at all, but it was very bizarre to me.
1: I mean, yes, I completely agree with you. It did take me uh, a little bit to fully grasp where we were headed. I mean, granted, I'd seen this before, but even in my rewatch, I was like, "Wait, I don't recall this breaking the fourth wall." Um, but it, it should be mentioned uh, that the the Great White North set and uh, directly addressing the audience, it was very clearly a nod to a Shakespearean prologue. Um, in that we address the audience, we tell you what you are about to not necessarily like witness, but I guess experience. Like, it, it sets the tone. And then from there, you just kind of roll into the story. So I understood what they were doing there. It definitely seemed a little, uh, smashed together, but also we're talking about SCTV alum, everything about SCTV. Like the charm of it was that everything was kind of just hobbled together a little bit. Uh, So I did appreciate it, despite the fact that it did kind of take me out a little bit in the beginning. But I, I do appreciate that they so clearly are referencing what starts and ends literally every Shakespeare play it's a a prologue and then at the very end we come back and we we discuss it again um so that's that's how it read to me if they were not attempting to do that um then maybe I'm just being too introspective but otherwise love it into it it definitely uh it made me giggle from a not only from it being silly but because you know i was looking at it so analytically that i saw the tongue in cheek humor of it
0: oh I, I i had never thought about that before i do not think that you are off track i think that is probably what they were doing but also apparently it was it was dave thomas's idea to base this on hamlet like he he wanted this movie to be based on hamlet because they were having some trouble figuring out well how do we make a movie out of a two-minute skit that is always improvised and is just us sitting in chairs drinking and talking about beer or getting a flat tire. They got Steve Desjardins to write the original script and um, it was Dave Thomas who said like like, make this Hamlet but then they were a little unhappy with that first script because it was too faithful to Hamlet so he kind of told him to be a little bit more creative with the parallels. And I know that the beginning with the movie within a movie was rewritten and added by Dave Thomas and Rick Moranis. They did some rewrites, but they said they only rewrote most of the stuff that they rewrote was in the beginning. And that if they had written the entire script themselves, which apparently they, they were under contract with SCTV that would not allow them to write the script for this movie. So they weren't able to do everything, but they, Dave Thomas has said that if they were had been allowed to write everything from the beginning, the rest of the movie would have been a little bit more bizarre and conceptual like that opening scene.
1: Huh, that's interesting to me, um, because that opening scene also very much reminded me of the play within the play that is um, uh, another Shakespeare work, uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, and even in the original Shakespeare work they referenced. That the play within a play is done by a traveling group of actors who are getting together, and putting on this show. And because it's traveling, their props are very shoddy and homemade, and it has a very rustic vibe to it. It's very funny that that was a last minute add on uh, to me because of the entire movie, that part is what seemed the most deliberate to me in terms of referencing Shakespeare.
0: I had read that. Uh that when the script was finished, MGM uh, it was a little unhappy. Bob and Doug were a little unhappy just because their their characters are so improvised. They didn't think that anybody else could quite grasp what made those characters work. So they they, they kind of wanted to write the entire thing from the get-go, from what I could gather, but were unsure of how much of it they could actually rewrite. And so they limited gotcha. what they added into the movie. Now, one thing I want to point out like a highlight of this movie anytime I see it, is Max von Sydow as Brewmeister Smith. He is playing, to call back to our last episode, Muppet Christmas Carol, he is playing the Michael Caine role of the person that is taking it incredibly seriously while everybody else is just chaotic and stupid around him.
1: And yeah, it's it's almost like he's taken this like the snidely whiplash role and made it so serious and almost daunting in a way.
0: This is a style of comedy that I mentioned last time that I love, where he is taking it so deadly serious, while also you can tell the actor is enjoying it. Like I think Max von is having fun in this role, but he is projecting such seriousness that his responses always make me laugh. And I love when he starts to get like really angry at Paul Dooley. Like he has the the line where he's, he's crushing Paul Dooley's head and he said, I could crush your head like a nut. It's so, it's, it's so over the top and very like, um, like very kind of real world villainous. I don't know. It's it, crushing your head like a nut. That's not real world. But you know, yeah. No,
1: you're totally right. And I did notice in this movie more than once they they went to skull crushing as a way to subdue the enemy. Um, it happened uh, with Paul Dooley, like you said, and then it happens again later uh, in the movie with what I will call the sleeper cell hockey warriors.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The um mates of the asylum
1: yeah it definitely stood out to me as just a really funny device to use because it's so unrealistic but when you see Max von Sydow doing it I believe it I believe he was crushing his skull because of the conviction that he was portraying the role with it it absolutely I agree with you this is one of my uh, favorite devices in, in comedy is is throwing in an actor who just takes it so seriously it, it produces a, a type of of humor that is almost akin to church giggles where it's it's so serious that you just you don't have any other reaction but to laugh you know sometimes you go into a movie and they have a villain and you're like yeah I buy that person as a villain and then every so often there's that one person that of course you buy them as a villain but you never would have thought of them in that role. I was just kind of poking around on the IMDB earlier this week and there are so many names in that movie that you know looking back you're you're like this movie was not a blockbuster hit. This was not you know topping the box offices anywhere, but they got some really incredible careers in this cast, like, you know, Max von Sydow, but also um, Lynn Griffin has a pretty expansive career. And then you also have the guy who plays Rosie. Uh, it's Gold Leader from Star Wars.
0: Yeah, no, Lynn Griffin has been around for quite a while. Like, she's she's very lovable in this movie. She's, like, adorable. And then uh, Rosie is, is good. You see him in, in things every once in a while. He still does Gold Leader. He was Gold Leader in Rogue One.
1: Yes, he was.
0: And of course, Paul Dooley's in a bunch of stuff.
1: Paul Dooley is one of those, that's that guy from that thing actors. He's just instantly recognizable, but um, I don't think the average person would be able to point at him and go, oh yes, Paul Dooley.
0: Yeah. Well, he's like in Popeye and 16 Candles. Yeah. Uh, 16
1: Candles.
0: <laughs> he was on uh, desperate housewives as well. Uh, he, he shows up in a lot of things. He's a, he's a Canadian actor. This, this movie has a very Canadian cast. I mean, it's a Canadian movie. Yeah. So like everybody that you'll see, if you watch any Canadian movies or TV, you've seen them in a ton of things.
1: Yes. And it's always nice to have a familiar face peppered in there. So when I saw him immediately, I was like, oh, I remember
0: him. So yeah. and one of it the was things, a nice treat. Yeah, it is. One of the things that I like about this movie is kind of how, free from Hollywood cameos it is like Max on is pretty much the only name outside that, that you would like big name in this movie outside of Rick Moranis and Dave Thomas, who at this point right. in their career were popular on TV, but like this was Rick Moranis's first movie. So he wasn't a, you know, he wasn't the beloved star of little shop of horrors and ghostbusters that he would later become. So Max on is was kind of like the only big name in the movie. But part of what I like about watching this is, these actors are kind of familiar for, to me at this point, but also they're, they're unusual faces that you don't see in a lot of things, right? It, it, they're kind of regional actors and everybody I think is doing a pretty good job, but it, it does have like kind of its own its own feel. Like this time I was watching it, trying to put it in, in context of early 80s comedy and it, it really did feel unique. And a lot of that is, is due to the casting, like the people that you don't just see all the time.
1: Yeah, it it adds a a freshness to it. You know, it's not just the same revolving door of of characters that you get in a lot of the comedies of the time. It's different faces that you don't always see. It's a setting that's completely unique. And realistically, even the story itself is pretty unique because at the time, there weren't a ton of Shakespeare adaptations floating around the market.
0: This is... Kind of, I mean, we 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 kind of talk about this as being Hamlet. It's not quite Hamlet. Like not everything is is an exact parallel. Although uh, Pamela is basically the Hamlet character. Her yes. father has been killed by her uncle, who is now romancing the her, her like is now her father-in-law trying to take over the brewery her father's ghost guides her along the journey a few times it's some very yes. funny, very funny special effects so it is there but it, it isn't it's kind of more rosencrantz and Guildenstern, right because it is following the the two kind of bumbling characters or the two minor characters
1: i would describe it as hamlet from a shifted perspective
0: okay This is kind of following, the movie is being told through the perspective of the characters with the least status, like the lowest characters in the plot, they're the ones that we're seeing the movie through.
1: Yes. So it does kind of have, I guess, mild Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead vibes, but to to bring up another uh, adaptation of Hamlet, a widely known one, uh, The Lion King there is a portion of the Lion King that is essentially told from the perspective of Timon and Pumbaa and they are the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern characters in that movie. So this is very much like if the Lion King had been told solely from the perspective of Timon and Pumbaa, that is what I get from strange brew. But like I said earlier, it is, it, it isn't Hamlet. It is, it is the shell of Hamlet. It takes the basic ideas the basic themes it addresses them but then it takes the story down a completely wild path that is not you know classic Shakespeare which is refreshing and it's nice and uh, it's I mean why would you have a comedy that ends in complete tragedy you know but yes you are I would agree with you when you say that they are very much the the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern perspective in this movie. And Lynn Griffin was playing the, the role of Hamlet. And I guess that would mean Rosie would be Ophelia, which is a funny visual, I suppose. Yeah. But yeah, no, I, I think the pieces fit together to form the silhouette of, of Hamlet. But it is also very much its own unique entity. I also like that they uh, were not shy in borrowing Uh, certain things from Hamlet to draw the correlations but like just to draw the correlations they weren't making any comparisons like the name of the brewing company is Elsinore and that's the name of where Hamlet's from in Denmark Uh, so there were little nods here and there acknowledging the the subject matter but again like I said they they take it completely down a route that's it makes it different and unique in a way that not a lot of adaptations do. I appreciate that they took such a well-known story and they're like, yeah, we basically want to do that, but we're not going to do that.
0: You know, what are, did you want to talk about any of the other parallels? Were there any in there that you like as I mean, I can see the main ones, but you as somebody much more familiar with Shakespeare and probably the source material Hamlet. Was there anything else that that kind of caught your fancy?
1: Um, you know, most of the parallels were just with the character roles. Um, the story itself, there wasn't really a ton of parallels. Obviously, you know, they're putting the drugs in the beer that causes an addiction to Elsinore beer. And in Hamlet, they very specifically poison drinks to kill certain people throughout the show so like there was that correlation but you know there was never any like synth pop or you you know hockey warriors or anything like (laughs) that in the original Hamlet Um, there was no I own 51% of this company yeah I, I, I truly believe that it was just the skeleton of Hamlet like this is an idea for a story that it almost, it's almost like a Mad Lib version of Hamlet. Okay, where, yeah, I
0: can see that. That's yeah, it's, putting it's,
1: it. It. it's the frame of it, but they put in their own plot and their own twists and their own story to fit the frame. Which is hard to do when you are basing it off of arguably the most well-known play in the English language. So
0: We should talk a little bit about that plot then, because it gets very, very, very silly. It
1: sure does.
0: Because Brewmeister Smith, a very great name, um, and I guess it's two letters. It's Brewmeister Smith, because when he goes to court, he introduces himself as Dr. B.M. Smith.
1: I picked up on that, too, and I could not tell if Brewmeister was one word and they were just trying to make a B.M. joke. (laughs) or if it was two separate words either way i loved it brewmeister smith is such an on-the-nose name that there's there's no way you're not gonna laugh at it you know
0: yeah and well because when he calls himself for for a while i was thinking like well brewmeister smith he is the brewmeister and then he goes to the court goes to court and when he says i'm b dr bm smith i was like oh it's his real name kind of like naming your your child otto octavius they he has to become an octopus-themed villain.
1: Yeah, it's like, um, growing up, my family had a dentist. Uh, His name was Dr. Yank. Oh, no. And, yeah, no, so it's like he was just kind of born to be a dentist. So who knows, maybe Brewmeister Smith was just born to be the Brewmeister.
0: Uh, So, yeah, so Brewmeister Smith. Brewmeister Smith is using the inmates at the nearby lunatic asylum, which there are underground tunnels between which lead to one of my favorite jokes at the end when they're in the asylum and Pam says, this way there's tunnels to the, uh, to the brewery. And Dave Thomas says, tunnels under the brewery. Oh, take off, how convenient. Which is just, <laughs> it, it makes me laugh. It made me laugh this time a lot because it's such a an on-the-nose like admission that everything is just kind of coincidental in a very convenient plot point way.
1: Yeah, it breaks uh, the fourth wall a little bit in that
0: way. It, it does. Every once in a while, there are a couple of lines. They, they kind of just call out the ridiculousness. They're not like looking at the camera and saying what's going on. They just, it does poke holes in how ridiculous the plot is. So Brewmeister Smith is using these inmates to test a formula in his beer that offers temporary mind control. And the way that they control them, I I mean, I don't understand how it works, but they they use a synth keyboard to yeah. make them, to make them play hockey underneath the brewery.
1: But it's it's not even it's not even hockey. It's like choreographed fighting on hockey skates. Like it's very I, I'm still not a hundred percent certain why they were doing it or what the payoff was. But it was certainly one of the one of the things that got a belly laugh out of me when they were when they stumble upon the the surveillance room, uh, Bob and Doug and uh, Rick Moranis just starts playing the keyboard and playing whatever song he's feeling like, and they're just skating around the ice and fighting, and he doesn't realize he's controlling them. Like, it definitely got a good belly laugh out of me, especially, like, how ridiculous is it that you were mind-controlling people with synth pop? Like, that's amazing, and it's such an 80s joke.
0: I, I think the hockey aspect was just because it was Canadian. The whole point of the Great White Norths bits on SCTV was to be, Canadian because they, they kind of had to have a certain, to get their funding or or whatever from like to be on the air, they had to have a certain amount of it that was dedicated to Canadian centric programming. And sure. So the great white North segments were just them being Canadian and talking about Canadian things like Canadian beer or the, you know, whatever is going on.
1: Yeah. Uh, it's They're very much the Canadian... Wayne and Garth in a way where it's like they have the it it gives the vibe of like just this is our public access channel and we're going to talk about the things that make us happy and well you know Wayne's World made it popular through Saturday Night Live and then moreover through their standalone movies that they had um this is just a completely different breed of funny because everything that they're talking about is so mundane and kinda kind of boring, not necessarily to the audience because we're having a laugh riot of a time, but like this is this is the beer that we're drinking. It's Canadian, eh? Like, you know, it's just, it's so it's so aggressively Canadian.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And that's what I think the point of the them playing hockey was was just because, well, we have to have hockey in this movie somehow. How are we going to fit it in? And then like, oh, we'll just have the mind control people demonstrate that they're being controlled by having them sort of play hockey but they're wearing yeah. basically they're bare wait they're not wearing real hockey gear they're wearing basically Star Wars stormtrooper outfits
1: <laughs> yeah and it and it gave me a very chess vibe because it was like the black suits versus the white suits and everybody was kind of matched up in a way so it it was like hockey meets chess meets Star Wars it was kind of bizarre but very funny the visual gag of it all was incredible and then you know obviously they were hearkening to hockey being one of the most Canadian things possible especially in the scene where uh they're getting the the hockey card signed by Rosie yeah yeah. and he he mentions oh it was a great hat trick against uh, Czechoslovakia like it's just so funny to me and as a hockey fan like uh, humor kind of stands out to me a little bit because it's not too often, especially nowadays, that you get like movies and and television series making jokes surrounding hockey. It in the '90s is probably when you got peak hockey humor with you know obviously Mighty Ducks, uh, but then other things like you know Bob and Doug McKenzie were referencing it with the Canadians, and you had movies like like Goon come out and things like that. So. I'm always here for hockey humors, I guess what I'm trying to say.
0: One other little bit of casting that's in this movie that is so out of left field, uh, that maybe is part of the reason why I liked it so much as a 14 year old, you know, just still still watching cartoons all the time, is that the voice of Bob and Doug McKenzie's dad is Mel Blanc. And he doesn't, we don't we we do see the faces of their parents, but the voice is very clearly Mel Blanc who did you know, Bugs Bunny and all of those looney Tunes. very recognizable voice. He's kind of almost doing Yosemite Sam here without the twang.
1: Yeah, kinda that's actually kind of dead on now that you mention it.
0: <laughs> I, I'm sure it's actually it correlates to another one of his characters. I'm just not picking I'm not I'm blanking on it right now. And the mom, only has like two lines in the movie. It, that is also a very recognizable cartoon voice. Like the mom voice is not credited. In the credits, it says Mel Blanc as the voice of Mr. McKenzie, but Mrs. McKenzie is not listed in the credits. There's nothing on IMDb trivia or Wikipedia. I, I could not find out who does the voice, but I think it is June Foray who also worked in Looney Tunes cartoons. She was also Rocky the Squirrel. Natasha from Rocky and Bullwinkle. You know, she she was on a lot of Scooby Doo's. She was a a very prolific voice actor as well. I I think that's who it is. I think uh, I think June Foray does that voice, but there's no no confirmation on that anywhere. I couldn't find anything.
1: Yeah, neither could I. Um, I suppose at this point, the only people who could possibly confirm that would be Rick Moranis and Dave Thomas and uh I, I don't have their phone numbers so I can't ask yeah. them but I I am inclined to agree with you my knowledge of June Foray pretty much is rocky the uh, flying squirrel um but uh listen to the Scooby Doo clip and it it was pretty close so I would not be surprised if it was June Foray and if it is june foray then you have an incredible ear for voice actors and i commend you
0: yeah well i may be completely off base i it's just the closest i could think of uh or i could yeah find and um if it is june foray it kind of bums me out that she's not credited in this
1: yeah i feel like if it was june foray it would be credited but also i don't i don't necessarily know um but I'm, I would be comfortable in assuming it was June 4, just based off of what I've heard.
0: Yeah. And there is, a, so the, the parents are voiced by Mel Blanc and maybe June 4. But the one time that we see them in their faces, Bob and Doug break into their room while they're, ha- they're having sex. And it is Rick Moranis and Dave Thomas. In like old man wake up, makeup, and then uh, Dave Thomas is in old man makeup, I believe, right? And it's Rick Moranis is in kind of drag, old woman drag, and they just turn to look at the yeah. door and yell to get out. Uh, it's a it's a really yeah. Rick funny. Rick
1: Moranis and Rick Moranis and drag is hands down one of the most frightening things I've ever seen. Oh come um, on!
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a, it, it, My initial thought was, oh, he looks like his mom. But yeah, it's definitely jarring to uh, to see on the screen. It's just a split second, but you know, what looks like simulated sex between old man Dave Thomas and Rick Moranis in Middle-aged woman drag. It's yeah, I, I think jarring is the word that I will use for that.
0: It's a very funny gag. I I think it's oh, yeah. a funny visual.
1: Oh yeah, no, it definitely got a good laugh out of me. It's just like initially when I first saw it, it was it was very shocking.
0: So the plot of the movie, like, we don't really need to talk about it. We're t- it's, it's funny. It's kind of Hamlet adjacent. They stop Brewmeister Smith's plan to distribute the tainted beer by giving it away free at Oktoberfest with the help of their skunk dog that suddenly flies at the end with a Superman cape and everything. This movie is ridiculous. Yes.
1: Not only was that such a funny gag to see the dog take off in flight with a cape on just because he was promised unlimited sausage and beer but also to have him land in the middle of the Oktoberfest celebration and he's not even on the ground for five seconds and somebody yells skunk but it's so clearly like a black lab with white on its back
0: (laughs) yeah That there's also the moment earlier on where the cops go to Bob and Doug's house. That something drops at the feet of the cops at the door, and they look up, and Ho's head is on the roof, and he just rolls up the roof out of sight. (laughs) Like, it it it's really bizarre. It looks like it could almost work in a horror movie as well.
1: You know, I noticed that about a couple of different elements in uh, in this movie. That obviously, but like also the um, the first reveal that we have about about pam's father being a ghost uh uh, that's kind of like omnipotent in a way when he plays the video on the uh the video game like arcade machine and it just kind of like shows all of the different videos like edited together where it's like this is what you saw on the surveillance cameras but this is what really happened and it's intercut with like very dramatic Frames of the father just staring down the barrel at the camera. It 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 read very much as like horror movie, um, almost kind of like Scream in the Ring in a way where they had those those moments where different things were stitched together in order to reveal the big mystery. And I I definitely got a kick out of it. I thought it was excellently written when they started playing with the arcade machine to begin with. And they started noticing like, oh, Pam, you have a high score on here. And no, I don't. What are you talking about? And it's it turns out that her high score is really her birthday. And then that kind of rolls into the discovery of the ghost. Like I thought that was handled so well and very funny. There is an instance where using that specific device can either come off as tropey or maybe too dramatic for such a silly comedy, but the silliness played, it, was, it wasn't it was too self-serious at all. I thought that that specifically was probably my favorite element of this movie, just how well they incorporated that plot device.
0: Okay, so is there anything else you wanna say before we move on? We've been talking about Strange Brew quite a bit. We should probably wrap up and get onto your, your pick for the week.
1: Sure. I mean, honestly, the only other note that I had for Strange Brew was an element of comedy that was added to it that was obviously not intended uh, because, as you said, this came out in 1983. Um, But watching this from 2021, the idea of installed surveillance was such a foreign concept to these people. (laughs) Um, the, The big conflict in the beginning of the movie was that he had installed surveillance cameras and that got more of a laugh out of me than it should have.
0: Yeah, yeah, we are kind of in a surveillance state. Okay, so that's going to do it for Strange Brew. I, I, I feel like I could keep talking about this, but I'm looking at the timer here. We've been going on for a while, so maybe we should move over to your pick.
1: My we'll pick?
0: Be, we'll be right back after this trailer actors who dreamed of leaving Tucson, Arizona, but no one would give them a chance until one drama teacher came up with a show so offensive, so profane, so stupid, it just might be their ticket to stardom. Hamlet 2? Hamlet 2? The deuce, correct.
1: The time machine opens, revealing Hamlet and
0: Jesus! Thanks, Jesus. You got my cell number? Yeah. Okay. You have Satan French kissing the president of the United States of America. Perfect. I'm glad I'm getting hammered. What's really going on here? Jesus is sexy, which leads us on to the musical interlude, Rock Me Sexy Jesus. Rock me, rock me, rock me sexy Jesus. I'm revoking permission for my son to appear tonight. If you sign a consent form, that means you're giving consent. You can't take that form back. You can't take your signature off it. You signed it. You signed consent. So end of deal, okay? End of story. Sorry, you guys, but you totally gave consent. (laughs) Nudity and pornography are not permitted. There's no nudity or pornography. Minimal.
1: No one is shutting down this play.
0: You want to hit me? You know, I would love it if you hit me. I'm suing everybody! Hamlet 2. My dad finds out what I've been up to.
1: He's going to crucify me.
0: In Hamlet 2, Dana Mars is a failed actor and recovering alcoholic who's living in Tucson and teaching high school drama to a group of mostly disinterested students. He is plagued by bad reviews for his constant reworkings of Hollywood blockbusters. When the principal informs him that drama will be cut next trimester, on the advice of a student reviewer, Dana decides to stage his own play, a unique original, a sequel to Hamlet, in which the prince and Jesus, with the use of a time machine, try to save Gertrude and Ophelia. This is a movie, it came out in 2008. It was part of Steve Coogan's kind of big introduction here in America. It did not quite succeed. I remember this movie kind of came and went, very mixed reactions. In fact, my reactions at the time were kind of mixed. I found a lot of it funny. I found Steve Coogan hilarious, but this movie, I felt its target range, it's trying to hit so many targets. It's so broad that it feels a little scattershot. Uh, but when it hits, it really hits. Now, I, I don't want to get too much into this right now because I know this is your like this is one of your favorites, right? You really love this movie. So I kind of want to give you a chance to talk a bit about it and and what you like about it. So um yeah. hey, what are your your like kind of a vague question, but what are your thoughts on Hamlet too?
1: So um just like you could talk about Strange Brew all day, I could talk about Hamlet too all day. This is one of my top comedies of all time. And I know that's such a broad stroke, but I just, I truly love this movie. It has a little bit of everything that I look for in a movie. It's got satire. Uh, It's dripping in satire. Uh, It has allusions to Shakespearean plays, a couple of different ones here and there. Um, And then on top of that, it has musical numbers, and I love musicals, so this kind of just really does it for me. I understand that the critical reception of this movie was maybe not the most glowing, but I also know that just in general, satire is typically not received the way that we want it to be right away, and then as it ages, people tend to understand it a little bit more and I feel like this movie is a lot like that where in 2008 it was not a big hit it was not necessarily received very well although some people did write really glowing reviews about it and as I watch it the older I get you know the funnier it is to me I did first see this movie back in 2008 I loved it then I love it now and it's always going to have a special spot in my heart as one of my of my favorites this is a a movie that was bought at sundance so you know in the tradition of sundance typically movies that are purchased through there have a tendency to become big hits Uh, this one was not one of them Uh, but it is from the producers or the executive producers sorry of little miss sunshine so it gives you a little peek into the subject matter that these people typically handle in their movies and i think when you go into it with that knowledge it kind of has a different a different feel to it I guess but not unlike Hamlet it's broken down into five acts it's structured just like the play would be uh but it is not based on Hamlet it is very specifically a sequel to Hamlet
0: yes and and not even really a sequel to Hamlet he is writing like he is writing a sequel to Hamlet that I think I think one of the things. I wish the movie had done, and I, I hate saying that because it's like saying you wish a movie to do, had done something differently is kind of meaningless because the movie is what it is. They did what they wanted to do, not what I wanted to do. But the act of writing Hamlet 2 is such a, is so, it's such a reju- restorative act of therapy for him that the entire point of it is that he wants to go back and fix a tragedy, which is what his life is. And the movie makes that clear, but I I just wish they had kind of like gotten a little bit more into his head because the movie has a lot of targets, including, you know, like self-serious artists, kind of like closeted gay panic, the ridiculousness of high school and of high school theater. Like every character is a different target that the movie is trying to hit. Like, it was then Amy Poehler, the ACLU lawyer, who, how do I want to describe her? Like, she's a little, a little... Um, she's
1: antagonistic.
0: Yeah, okay, she's antagonistic. That's a very good way of putting it. And Catherine Keener, as the rather one-dimensional villainous wife, they're roommate uh, David Arquette like the <laughs> the the kind of like the protein shake drinking like really boring guy who just talks about like what great parking spots he got everybody is a, a joke in this movie and I wish they had maybe just burrowed into into Dana's psychology a little bit because there's something very touching about the fact that he makes this play which is about hamlet getting in a time machine with jesus and traveling through history and meeting einstein and hillary clinton and going back and saving the people in hamlet from from dying and he even says himself that his life is a parody of a tragedy which is basically what he writes yes Uh, that like the movie i wish it had been a little bit more focused but you talk about this as being a sundance movie they that a very big bidding war was had at Sundance. It was rapturously received at Sundance. And then it, it bombed. Like, this is a bomb in that it made no money. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and
1: it, e- it didn't even get a UK release. It was scheduled for a release and it got postponed. And then it just never happened.
0: Which is ridiculous because of how big Steve Coogan is in British comedy, especially at the time.
1: I think they saw how it bombed in the U.S. and they didn't want Steve Coogan to have a movie bomb in the U.K. Uh, but also, you know, while this movie did very clearly bomb, it, it, I'm not going to, like, defend it and be like, it didn't do well, but it's a good movie. Like, no, like, in points, this movie is, it's it's a little silly and it gets a little big for its own britches in some points. But uh, personally, the the rapturous response that you speak of at Sundance, I, I personally think it was it was well deserved. And the reason that it bombed per se in in the box office in the United States, I think it has a lot to do with just the general reception of satire. I think it's not a very common form of comedy um in the modern day. Satire was very, very popular um back when comedies were just starting to get their footing, like with the with the Marx brothers and things like that. And it just kind of petered off uh, the further we got into movie history. So satire nowadays doesn't necessarily do as well as it would have in you know the Doctor Strangelove timeframe. Um, so I do think it has a lot to do with that, but also it does have a tendency to get a little, little slapsticky, a little, little raunch. But the thing that I, that I love the most about this movie and that the reason why it's so special to me, at least, is you can tell from the beginning to the end that the actors... The writers, the producers had fun. This is just a fun movie, and you can tell that everyone had a good time making it. And seeing that and understanding that, I think made me like it more.
0: Yeah, and I want to be clear that I do like this movie. I think this is a good movie. yeah uh, i'm not I'm not trying to break it down by saying that it, it it's bad. I just think there are there. Are, is a focus issue that it isn't as focused as it should be. And that you're right about satire isn't really a popular comedic art form for you know blockbuster movies anymore. There was a big marketing blitz. So Universal and Focus Features put a lot of money. They put more money into advertising this movie than it cost to make the movie to begin with and more money than they paid by several times. It opened wide like it it had a, a, a very brief limited release but then it opened wide across the country I think that was the wrong choice I don't think that this sh- movie should have been given a humongous push I think it should have been given like kind of an art not an art house but you know like a like, like a, a smaller limited rollout
1: yeah like an indie get, release
0: yeah to get word of mouth because I think it would have been uh, I think they paid 10 million, I think was what I read for it. And I think it it easily could have made that back if they had just had a more patient rollout. Because it's not like you watch this movie and it's not going to become the ne- the next big thing. I think they were hoping for another Napoleon Dynamite because I was watching this and I was really thinking of like, oh yeah, it makes sense that this is produced by Little Miss Sunshine producers. And it has that that very... Early 2000s or mid 2000s, you know, like 2004 to 2008 or whenever, feel of a movie that is going for kind of an indie feel. It, they're filming in the Southwest and everybody's a little bit quirky and it's mm-hmm. dry and gritty in areas. Like, I can see that they were maybe hoping that they had the next Napoleon Dynamite, the next thing that was going to be the sleeper hit of the summer.
1: And if there's one thing that I can say about the writing style of this movie, it's that they show you their hand right away. They let you know exactly what this movie is within the first 15 minutes because within the first 15 minutes, they reference Dead Poets Society, Dangerous Minds, Stand and Deliver, Mr. Holland's Opus. All four of those movies are inspirational teacher movies. They're very clearly trying to pave the way for this is what we are trying to make fun of and we are making sure the audience is aware of that. And I think they do that really well also with the dramatic voiceover that, uh, you know, the Jeremy irons also by having title cards for each of the acts um, ahead of going into them. Uh, Like obviously you start with act one, which is the springtime drama spectacular. uh, uh, I think it's West Valley Mesa high school or something like that. And they dump you right into it, but it's two teenagers on a makeshift stage in a cafeteria performing a stage version of Aaron brockovich which is absurd that is that is subject material that no high school should be handling they are and by they i mean the writers are very much making fun of them themselves i believe
0: it's written by andrew fleming and pam brady and andrew fleming is a writer director he did the craft yeah uh, this his first movie was bad dreams this horror movie in the 80s he did uh, dick um threesome i don't know if anybody ever saw that it's got Stephen Baldwin. And I think Laura Flynn Boyle is in it. I can't remember. <laughs> anyway, it was a 90s kind of like indie college comedy. Sure. Um, and Pam Brady, who worked a lot on South Park, she worked with Trey Parker and Matt Stone a lot. She wrote an, on South Park, uh, the South Park movie, Team America. She also wrote one of my favorite underrated comedies, Hot Rod, the Andy Samberg Lonely Island it is
1: movie. so funny that you mentioned Hot Rod because I almost mentioned Hot Rod when we were talking about Strange Brew. Oh,
0: um,
1: because when they have the opening scene and it's the uh, the audience talking back to the screen and like getting upset at the movie, that's a they directly reference that in Hot Rod.
0: Yeah, Hot Rod is definitely going for kind of that that eighties feel that Strange Brew is uh, exhibiting, like the, that Strange Brew has. So these are these are people. I mean, more Pam Brady than uh, maybe Andrew Fleming, but Pam Brady definitely has a feel for shocking, outrageous musical humor. I yes. think she's more successful when working with Trey Parker and Matt Stone. I don't know if that's necessarily her fault in here. I don't know. Maybe maybe. Saying her fault makes it sound like somebody's failed in this movie, and I don't think they've really failed. I think they succeeded at what they wanted to do. I think it, the movie just failed to connect with an audience at large, which is not, a, not their fault, really. It's nobody's fault. Um, <laughs> I'm talking in circles here. But I guess, I, yeah, I, I just keep coming back to it that I feel like the movie is a little bit unfocused because it has such great little moments in it. I think there are stuff that keeps me laughing throughout enough to keep me invested and interested. Steve Coogan is definitely the glue that keeps us together. I think without Steve Coogan, with any other actor in this role, it wouldn't have worked even to the extent that it does work now.
1: Correct. I completely agree with you on that. And I think a really good example of why that's the case is just about a third of the way through the movie, we have a moment uh, with, principal rocker and dana marsh and you know that's basically when he's like we're shutting down the drama program sorry nothing can be done about it and then it cuts to dana in the classroom in front of his students having a full-blown mental breakdown and he's he's monologuing about you know the little boy who grew up on a dairy farm in Manitoba who wanted to be an actor, but wasn't very good at it. And I, I that specific part, I cannot envision a single other person doing other than Steve Coogan. So I really do think that he took this role. He made it his own. He made it so that nobody could even try to emulate it. And, and then the, the writers have the the fun challenge of taking Steve Coogan's performance, heightening it with dialogue. And then on top of that, having the tongue in cheek humor from the students who surround him, who are the only ones in this entire movie based in reality. Like when at the end of this, this monologue that he has and he collapses to the floor and one of the students says, is he acting? And the other one says, well, no, he's not that good. Like that is one of those moments to me where that was very clearly a a collaboration between the actors and the writers. Like, how can we make this just one of the funniest jabs at this character throughout the whole movie, But but it's so subdued. And that's a part of the movie's charm for me is that most of the humor in it is directly making fun of our protagonist. The person that we're supposed to like, the underdog who's, you know, putting his life's work into a show that even he from the beginning concedes probably is going to suck. The humor tears down this, this protagonist in a way that only makes him stronger in the end. Um, And that's, it's a device that's not necessarily used very often. so. I enjoy it, I find it refreshing. I I, I could also just be looking at this from a completely biased perspective, I don't know.
0: Well, I was gonna say about his performance here is that this is a character type that uh, Steve Coogan is very adept at playing, which is an incompetent character who is nevertheless, well, a character that is blindly confident.
1: It's like a chaotic emotional energy that he brings to the performance that while it is outlandish and silly, it also is so earnest.
0: Well, that's what I was going to say is that, have you seen, I mean, have you, have you seen his um, Alan Partridge, any of his his shows or the movie?
1: Uh, Yes. Okay.
0: So this is very much Alan Partridge with a difference that this character He's, well, this character is vulnerable in a way that Alan Partridge never is because this character knows that he's a failure. Like Alan Partridge would never admit that to himself, but Dana is constantly admitting what a failure he is. And yet he is still confident that he can do it, that he, he like the line he says, he loves acting, but he's not very good at it. So he just wanted to teach others and get others, uh, and share the love of the craft with others, which yeah is is such a humanizing, noble goal for this character that you it forgives a lot of his self centered asshole ish behavior. That it in the end he knows he's not that good. He just wants to help others get very good.
1: Exactly. And and there is a direct payoff of that personality trait in this movie. And it comes in, uh, well, just before the, the final act of the movie, uh, the character Octavio, or as we know him for the first half of the movie, Haywood, he says, uh, after, you know, Dana has his little bit of a a relapse in his alcoholism. He says, you know, it doesn't matter how much talent we lock, uh, we lack uh, when we have enthusiasm. And I think that is very much the through line of this movie is, you know, Dana himself lacks talent in every facet that he tries to apply it. But the enthusiasm is what draws us in. It's the it's it's that that, you know, really creates a magnetic field that just pulls in the viewers uh and connects you to the character so I do think that it does directly pay off and that that wanting to instill in others that you know you may not be great at it but you can be great at it as long as you you know you work and you're enthusiastic and you you're confident like I don't know. I just I, I like that 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 specific through line does come full circle at the end. And then, you know, right after that happens, we go directly into the show where they're performing the uh, musical numbers in, in front of the audience. And. You get to see it firsthand, like you see these these kids on stage singing and dancing, and there's nothing remarkable about anything that they are doing on the stage but you're still drawn in and you're having fun watching them i mean the only real remarkable performances from that are from the um the main two drama students epiphany and rand uh but it should also be noted that the actors phoebe stroll and skylar Aston are both seasoned broadway performers by the time this this movie was made
0: Oh, okay, yeah, I was not familiar with any of them before this movie.
1: Yeah, um, Skylar Aston Rand in the movie uh, went on to achieve some fame with the Pitch Perfect movies. However, I previously knew him from the 2006 Broadway musical Spring Awakening. Actually, Phoebe Stroll was also in that musical. So they worked not only on Broadway, but they worked together. So they did have that chemistry going
0: into it. Okay, well, so let's get back to the the plot and what you said about the character payoff for Dana at the end and the the success of putting on the show and the joy of it. That this character that Steve Coogan is playing is so perfectly pitched towards his talents and he makes it so unique from the other characters that he's played that are like this and he gives the character a heart and you do wanna root for him, even when you're very annoyed and you're thinking he's doing very stupid things, that I, I kind of wish, well, I, like I said before, that we had spent more time in his, not maybe not in his head, but dealing with his growth because there's a, there's a lot of diversions in this movie that I'm not necessarily as much of a fan of and I think maybe even detract a little bit the main one I'm thinking of, the main offender, is possibly Catherine Keener as his wife. Mm-hmm. And I think she's a great actress. I think she's really fun in this movie. She's doing what, like, a great job. But the movie makes her rather one dimensional. And she is just there to kind of be a scolding, browbeating wife, right? That will eventually leave him for another man. After right. he becomes pregnant with that other man's child. Like, it, it's just another another thing the movie is using to bring Dana down. And I get that, but it does her a disservice because, because well, she, I mean, she's a great actress, but also you think about living with Dana and how he is would probably mm. be kind of difficult. Like she does, he makes, the movie lets him off the hook for his awful behavior at times, but makes her just, just a villain pretty much.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with you, but I also think that she does serve the purpose of as you put her as you put it, you know, she's very one dimension, one dimensional and scolding in a way. But I think it offers a direct opposite to the introduction of Elizabeth Shue, uh, who just incredibly plays herself.
0: <laughs> Yeah, she plays herself as somebody who has decided to give up Hollywood and get a job as a nurse so she can help people. But she's working in a fertility clinic in Tucson, Arizona.
1: (laughs) Hey, if you want to help people, it's it's the fertility clinics in Tucson that really need your help. But the, the idea of having Elizabeth Shue play the romantic interest opposite Steve Coogan is one thing but to have her play the romantic interest opposite Steve Coogan as herself genius I love it Um, having her presence in the movie really does kind of offer not only a a unique perspective to the characters in the movie because like you know Dana is so enrobed in this this fantasy world of theater and acting and and how perfect the idea of that life is to him and then elizabeth Shue is just like i left acting because it's fake and everybody's terrible and i hated it and so that offers a unique perspective to him but also just like in general to the the viewer from the outsider's perspective looking in it's absolutely incredible to have a character in a movie about fictional people have one character that is a real person in our real lives that we can cross-reference and be like oh that's that, that's the the chick from soap dish oh but but she's actually playing herself that's bizarre why would she do that and then as you go through the story you understand that like it does kind of make sense bringing in an actress to play herself as opposed to having like some fictional actress in this world. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, no, that's, that is a trope that I'm always, I always enjoy. Actually. I love it when a character in a movie is playing themselves and it does lead to one of the funniest moments in this movie as well, where he is introducing her to his class and they don't know who she is. And he's trying to name off all of her movies.
1: Dreamer
0: with a fucking horse <laughs>
1: <laughs> couldn't even bother to google her
0: yeah i it it was fun i do like that it does lead to you're right his bottoming out and coming back up it does lead to his romance with uh elizabeth shu i just feel like that character like we spend so much time with her and she's fun but we spend so much time with her and she doesn't get a ton, a lot to do and what she does get to do is just really some of the more cliched stuff in the movie. Um, although, like I said, Catherine Keener is very, has a fun energy. David Arquette is the most boring person in the world. He just looks like a lovable lost puppy all the time. Like even when he's leaving with Dana's wife, it just seems like, like she's dragging him along and he's, yeah. like, eh, well, sorry, what are you going to do?
1: <laughs> I left you a protein shake. It's strawberry. Like it's, the driest, most boring dialogue on the planet, but we all know that guy. Yeah. We all have that guy in our lives. who's just kind of a meathead who doesn't really have anything to bring to the table in terms of conversation. But, you know, he's there. He's, he's almost like glorified furniture. He's just kind of there. He has little moments throughout the movie that are so... Stupid that they 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 break the tension of the scene, like when um, like when they're in the Mexican restaurant and uh, there's a little bit of back and forth between Steve Coogan and Captain Keener about uh, oh I wish you would start drinking again and all that stuff, um, where it is kind of like a heavy conversation, but we're laughing at it regardless because the way it's written is funny. But we also know, like, this is a heavy conversation that they're having. And then to have David Arquette's character break that tension by just going, you guys laugh a lot. Like, it's the stupidest thing. And I appreciate it for what it is, which is solely a device to break the tension.
0: Okay, yeah, I, that's true. That's true. Um, like I said, I don't want to be too hard on this movie. It, it is funny. It is enjoyable for the most part. And it is not fair for me to say what I wish the movie had done, but... Uh, there we are uh, th- th- what are we do- gonna do other than talk about it here? yeah I, I mean
1: will- I think the uh, Oct- Octavio's dad said it best while he was watching the play at the end he says I am simultaneously horrified yet fascinated
0: well I gotta say people get up and leave during that play like everybody is so offended and I can get I get people being offended I guess I mean I, I'm certainly not offended by anything in this movie but i can get there being people offended by yeah. what is being said i do not get people giving up and walking out because how can you watch that play and not be anything but utterly fascinated like it's terrible but you just i would i would be stuck in my seat like what is going to happen next this is completely insane and you
1: know i think that's the dividing line between a lot of people is there are those people where it's like a car accident you just can't look away you know what you're looking at is terrible but you just can't divert your attention away from it and then there's the people who are just like if I don't have to look I won't so I'm just gonna leave and I, I do think that's where the dividing line is um, but I agree with you if I was in that auditorium watching that musical I would be I would be immovable, like glued to what they were doing because it's so bizarre. It's not offensive. Like I I get how it could be, but it's not offensive to me. So I can't necessarily say the subject matter would be offensive to me, but it's, it's just so irreverent that it's, it's, it's really hard to look away, especially when they're or dana's story rather is struggling so hard to put the pieces together to make everything fit um and then at the end to have like the 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 subtext of the entire story to be like oh it's about forgiving my father like really (laughs) is that is that how you got there
0: yeah well that's what what i'm i'm saying though is is beyond just the plot like the the fact that you're seeing somebody make a play about a time traveling Hamlet, the idea that, that it's so clearly an act of, of self-therapy, like he, he, it's yes. clearly him working through something is very fascinating. Like that sort of thing would just be like impossible to not watch where it happening in front of you.
1: Right. And we have like a little peek into that kind of inner workings that you were kind of craving with the movie Um, when he is talking with Octavio's parents about, you know, well, we just don't see why you would write a sequel to Hamlet. And he says, I just don't understand why everyone has to die at the end. If Hamlet had just had a little bit of therapy, he really could have turned things around. And that's where we get that glimpse inside of his head, because it's very clear at that point that he sees himself as a Hamlet type figure. And to, to come to the conclusion that like, you know, if, if Hamlet had had therapy, things would have been so different and it wouldn't have been a tragedy. It may, could have been something completely different. And that's just such a thought process that you don't apply to things that were written in the 1600s because therapy didn't really exist back then. Um, so it would make sense for somebody who's working through their own issues to theorize what would happen if, this person that they very much see themselves in had gone to therapy. It's like, sure. You could just go to therapy yourself, or you could write a sequel where the protagonist did get some therapy and worked things out and also built a time machine.
0: And that's my favorite part of this movie. That is the thing that really keeps me invested in it is how relatable that goal is. Like, I, I don't know if, Hamlet needs a sequel, but the idea of a thought experiment where you write a sequel, where you get to kind of like work through your trauma in this fictitious way, like that is that is very rich. That's a very rich vein for storytelling, for mining, for insights that I I just, I I like those parts a lot. I feel like they're just a little bit few and far between. They get hammered in, sorry, they get hammered home at the right spots but also like I like that more than I like some of the uh, scattershot humor throughout the rest sure. of the movie
1: you yeah, know I, I, I get that but I also feel like if we had focused more on the inner workings of Dana's head a little bit, it would not have been it maybe would have been like a a darker comedy
0: that maybe I just I think the character of Dana is so positive that this is a dark comedy yeah I, I think. I think his character is so positive and unflappable. Well, not, he's not unflappable. What am I talking about? He's completely flappable. I'm just saying that he is so unwavering in his positivity. Even when he hits rock bottom and starts drinking, he bounces right up from it immediately. Like there's no real wallowing. He just like, like kind of like wakes up and he's like, oh, wait, you're right. This is okay.
1: I wish that happened all the time in real life, you know?
0: So I think, I think his portrayal, his portrayal would have kept this movie from becoming too dark. And you're right. Maybe I'm describing more of a drama. I, I don't know what I want. I don't know what I want. I'm just saying that this movie was good. I don't necessarily love it the way that you do.
1: Yes. And that's totally understandable. It's very hard to find people who have my level of love for this movie. And that is because it, it's a good, it's a good movie. It's a fine movie. The lack of critical review with the movie i think it just didn't reach a wide enough audience so not enough people know about it and the people who do know about it probably found it either by accident or because they follow things like like sundance and they expect movies of a certain caliber and then when you get hamlet Two, it's it, it's just such a different flavor so like, I understand why not everybody is a huge fan of this movie, and I definitely accept that this movie does come with its own set of flaws and faults, but it's always going to have a special place in my heart, and it doesn't matter what anybody says about it because it's, it's that, that infectious positivity that comes with the movie that makes it so special to me.
0: Okay. I totally see that. And you know what? I will probably watch this again and I will keep your thoughts in mind when I do so. And maybe I'll like it more. I think I might've sure. even liked it more this time than I did the first time. Cause it, it was, I it did not leave like a humongous impression on me the first time I saw it.
1: Yeah. I mean, most people when they saw it for the first time were watching it because they knew that it was the movie that had that song about sexy Jesus.
0: Ah, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, I,
1: I mean, the, that song was a hit before the movie even came out.
0: Yeah, that, there was a pretty big marketing push for this movie. And now it's, you're right, it's kind of not remembered. Nobody talks about Hamlet 2 anymore. Just me. <laughs> uh, I got to <laughs> say my favorite bit in the movie that they return to just enough times, I think, is Dana's relationship with the art critic at the high school newspaper.
1: Noah Saperstein,
0: who that actor Shea Pepe has never yeah. been in anything else. This is the only movie he's ever been in.
1: And this role, with the, he's he's a teenage boy, but this role was so inspired. Like he did such a good job with it.
0: He, he did, and he, he's this little pipsqueak who speaks with a college level education, basically. Like he is. He has, is so insightful and has so many great references to art and art criticism, and you, the little bit we get out of his writing is so, like, perfectly on the nose. Yeah. And, and Dana, like, basically treats him as a surrogate father, this little, like, five-foot kid, <laughs> like, 14 or 15, maybe 16 years old, and Dana's always going to him for advice, they have like an antagonistic relationship because he eviscerates all of Dana's plays in the school newspaper to a level that I'm like, I know my high school would probably not have allowed anybody to print something that disrespectful to other students and faculty. But yeah. He's so much... It like he is so dismissive and unsparing in his criticism of Dana. And yet Dana treats him as kind of the father figure that he's always trying to impress and is taking the advice from throughout the movie. And it is such a funny pairing and the way they play it and the guileless nature of Steve Coogan's performance in those scenes. It's always fun. And I think they go back to it just enough.
1: I agree. And there's, there's a turning point in the movie about Eh, about a third of the way through when um he does find out that they're shutting down the drama program and he's talking to noah soperstein about it you know like oh are you happy did you get what you want and that kind of slow rolls into a conversation regarding you know have you ever maybe thought of writing your own material to put on as a play instead of you know just taking movies and turning them into stage plays a la Aaron Brockovich and as mentioned in the movie the previous production was of Mississippi Burning yikes (laughs) but you know Dana brings up the idea of always wanting to write a sequel to Hamlet and immediately you can understand a maturity in this this character because he's a 14 year old kid who just heard the drama teacher say that he wanted to do a sequel to Hamlet and his immediate reaction is Well, I guess I never thought of that, but it could be good. And then on top of that, Dana asks the question, what if it sucks? I wrote this down because I always find it to be very poignant and yet very saccharine. Uh, Noah Saperstein responds by saying, isn't that a question that every artist must ask himself? And I understand that this is a comedy and it's not meant to be taken too seriously, but I do agree that every artist must ask themselves when they're creating their own art you know what if it sucks like what well, what if it sucks you know and i think that's an attitude that the entire movie kind of embodies is so what if it sucks you know and i appreciate that bit so i'm glad that you brought up uh that character because he is actually my favorite character in the entire movie yeah, because of
0: that part he's the best non Dana character in this so talking about that play at the end, both of these movies, we've got, you know, Strange Brew and Hamlet 2, both movies involve a show that basically causes a riot. Because in Strange yeah. Brew, they're in the movie theater, and everybody starts rioting and leaving and throwing stuff and asking for their money back. In this, they have Hamlet 2, and people start walking out, there's cops outside, the fi- like the fire department's trying to shut them down, the ACLU lawyers and the a uh, large security force are trying to keep everybody out from trying to like set fire to the stage or whatever they're trying to do
1: yeah like a local gang and the high school football team act as security detail for a high school musical that has been blown so out of proportion and has divided the community so much that it involves uh, not only police presence but fire marshal presence and entire news crews that are like just documenting the unrest around a high school theater production. And to me, that is that is a prime example of escalation in comedy. Because I do not think that the musical portion at the end would have had the payoff that it did if they did not have like a full-blown riot happening yeah. at right outside the performance space.
0: Yeah, yeah. Even though I think some of the blasphemous nature of this movie... has dulled a little bit over the years i don't remember being like too shocked by this movie at the time and now especially i'm like well what are people worried about rock me sexy jesus isn't that bad of a song yeah right do you have anything else you want to say any uh any other final thoughts before we move on i mean
1: honestly my final thoughts on hamlet 2 are if you haven't seen it watch it and um it's a movie that's not meant to be taken seriously and it tells you that from the beginning. So try not to look through it from a critical lens, like just go into it to have fun. And I promise you will, you know?
0: Yeah. Maybe I was trying to look at it too seriously because I knew I had to discuss it on this show.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, give it another shot and update me on your thoughts then. And otherwise, you know, I totally understand how some people would not consider this one of their top comedies of all time. And I am just, it is a unique opinion of mine and I am always happy to discuss it.
0: All right, we're back. We're gonna go over our top fives this week and our top fives are broadening the theme a little bit. We're not just gonna go with Hamlet, we're gonna go with Shakespeare. These are our top five Shakespeare adaptations in film. And I will go first partially because I think there might be a little bit of a, <laughs> I might be there, think there might be a little bit of crossover. I also think you're going to probably have the more interesting informed choices than I do. Uh, um, well, we'll see. <laughs> okay. Well, I went with off kilter as my theme. I tried to go for ones that are like, that are odd sideways uh, in reimaginings, which is kind of like, that's the thing right now. Like hardly anybody does Shakespeare as it, as Shakespeare would have been performed. (laughs) Like everybody kind of tries to modernize it. But anyway, I'm just going to go with the first one. My first one is Forbidden Planet, the... Hmm. The Leslie Nielsen starring sci-fi movie with you know the the famous Robbie the robot. It is basically a reworking of the Tempest, 1956 sci-fi film. It is the Tempest set on another planet instead of just an island. Sure. And it's really fantastic. It really holds up. It's a good movie. It is very fun. It is a very kind of classic sci-fi. Like if you like the 1950s sci-fi style you'll like it this is a very good example of that type of movie
1: yeah for sure
0: okay go ahead your your, your first pick
1: um my first pick is actually oh if you've ever seen it it is a retelling of othello
0: oh, or okay.
1: o- othello depending on who you are starring uh makai pfeiffer uh julius styles and josh hartnett It's, uh, like I said, it's the retelling of the movie Othello. It's set in a high school, and it is essentially uh, retelling Othello through the perspective of a high school basketball star, whereas uh, the role of Desdemona is now Desi, played by Julia Stiles. I personally think that it's a really good adaptation of Othello. It keeps it interesting for the audience, and it doesn't stray too far from the subject matter while keeping it for at least the time, modern and, and fresh. And I, I really like, oh.
0: That's a, that's a really good one. That's a good choice. I'm gonna go with Throne of Blood, an Akira Kurosawa film. He transports Macbeth to feudal Japan. Uh, he did a few Shakespeare adjacent films. Ron is another really great one. It's a color film. That one is uh, King Lear, it, the Bad Sleep Well is also a kind of Shakespearean adaptation. I think that one's a little bit less accurate to the text. It's another, it is based loosely on Hamlet. Anyway, Throne of Blood, Toshirma Fune. it's Shakespeare as a samurai film, really cool. Uh, maybe my favorite of those three. I mean, Ron's more epic, but Throne of Blood is just like a really engaging, like exciting movie.
1: Sure. Yeah. No. Totally. I've never. I've never seen that one, but I will watch it now. My next one is the nineteen ninety one drama, My Own Private Idaho.
0: Yeah, you know, I was looking at on at that on lists. I've not. I've never seen that movie, so I Hmm. didn't even know that it was based on Shakespeare.
1: Yeah, it's based on the Henry plays. It's kind of just like an amalgamation of all of the henry plays put into one movie uh, specifically with the final act of the movie being very akin to henry four which is my favorite of the henry plays obviously you've got you know river phoenix you have keanu reeves it's one of the shakespeare adaptations that i think is incredibly loose and if you didn't necessarily have like a, a, a deep understanding of the Henry plays, you would not know that this is a Shakespeare adaptation, which is why I like it so much. Uh, stellar performances, you know, both River Phoenix and Keanu Reeves give incredibly memorable acting performances it's one I recommend to anybody, even if you're not looking for a Shakespearean story. It's just a very good movie.
0: Yeah, I I need to watch that. Um, so my next one is, uh, my next one is Titus, the Julie Taymor Titus from 1999. And yeah. It is famously, I mean, I don't know Shakespeare as much as you, but for for what I understand, it is famously his bloodiest play. <laughs> like it is. as presented in the movie anyway it's almost grand guignol at times for how much like just how brutal it is um Mm -hmm. I saw this I was 21 when this came out I saw it in theaters I did not know the play the movie blew me away with its visuals just the entire tone of it I think Julie Taymor obviously she's very well known as being uh to use an overused word that I do not like visionary director and This is the one that I think is the most successful. I've followed her career since. I've watched all of her movies. I think this is the only one that I I think is 100% successful. I mean, talk about kind of a mess of a movie. It is just such a full of anachronisms. Like it is full of kind of clashing styles and yet it somehow works. I just love this movie so much.
1: Uh, yeah, actually, I'm, I'm very happy you brought that up. It's not one of the movies on my list, but Titus Andronicus is my favorite Shakespeare play.
0: Oh, oh wow.
1: It is uh, the show that holds the record for the most onstage deaths. It is the bloodiest play. Um, but what a lot of people don't understand about it is that it is, in fact, a comedy like it very much is. When you read through it, it reads very dramatic and very dark and very dour. But when it's done in the original tone that Shakespeare had set when he was writing the show, it is very funny. I recently saw a production of Titus Andronicus back in 2019 um, when they were doing uh, Shakespeare in the Park over at Griffith Park. It was great I enjoyed every second of it and the person sitting right in front of me was also Andy McDowell which was great oh wow (laughs) yeah I know right so it was just like an all-around good time but yeah Titus Andronicus is a hundred percent my favorite Shakespeare play my next movie it's a really well known adaptation that I love very much and will always have a special place in my heart and that is West Side Story
0: oh okay West Side Story
1: Yes, Natalie Wood and West Side Story. It's one of those movies that I have been watching since I was young. And if anybody is not aware, it is obviously a, a direct retelling of Romeo and Juliet. And the movie version of, of West Side Story is not only one of the cleanest retellings of Romeo and Juliet, but it is char- like Charming seems like a... Like it has kind of a negative connotation to it, but it, it, it is charming in the sense that it entrances you. It's it's just well done cinematically. The music is fantastic, the acting is great, and it's one of those movies that while it did come out, you know, several, several decades ago, it still holds up in a modern sense. At least I think so.
0: The dancing and the staging on that are incredible. Yes. I really enjoy like like the, the set work on that. The set design is always great. Are you interested at all? Are you looking forward to the remake?
1: Yes, actually I am. I am a firm believer that there should be more movie musicals. I love them down in the deep, dark spots of my heart and I always will. Um, so when I, I see new versions of it, coming out just like new versions of any musical really i i get excited because it's re-injecting it into popular culture and hopefully will create a wave of of musical theater fans which you know in in today's day and age is, is exactly what the theater community needs they need new fans right now and i'm very much looking forward to it along with a lot of other movie musicals that are coming out um soon. I mean, not to venture too far off topic, but the one I'm most looking forward to is the film adaptation of Lin-Manuel Miranda's In the Heights. Yeah,
0: that, that looks like it's going to be good.
1: It's, it's If you haven't heard the music yet, and I would very rarely recommend this, but don't listen to it. Wait until the movie comes out because it's one of those things that when you have the visual aid to go along with the music, it heightens the experience. Okay. Um but yeah, that's that's my number 3 pick was uh West Side Story.
0: Very good. Very good pick. Okay. My number 4 pick is this is the one I was kind of iffy on. I had an alternate for it, but I'm going to go with The Black Adder, the the series with Sir sure. Atkinson. The first series is based on the works of Shakespeare, mainly Macbeth, I think Richard the 3rd and Henry V. Uh It is honestly not my favorite of the Blackadder seasons, which is why I was kind of questioning whether I wanted to put it on this list. But I do like it. I love Blackadder, particularly a uh, a couple of the later, the upcoming series. And it did start here. There is stuff that I really like in this. And it is, you know, an adaptation, in all sorts of Shakespeare.
1: Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Um, I appreciate that. Uh, Love me some Rowan Atkinson. So always nice to include him. My next one is almost entirely a nostalgia pick for me. It is kind of low-hanging fruit in that everybody knows this is Shakespeare adaptation. And that is the uh, the teenage romantic comedy, 10 Things I Hate About You, Lucy based on Taming of the Shrew. I am a really, really big fan of a late 90s angry girl rock. And this uh, this movie's soundtrack was just jam-packed with that. Uh, some letters to Cleo in there, which is honestly all that I want in my life. Um, <laughs> this movie has Julia Stiles in it, as well as Heath Ledger. And then Andrew Keegan is in this movie. But it should also be noted that it, my earlier pick, O, has both Julia Stiles and Andrew Keegan in it. So they are repeating actors in Shakespeare adaptations. I don't know if that's on purpose or not, but I enjoy to see them both in them nonetheless. You know, 10 Things I Hate About You, it was right in the beginning of Heath Ledger's career, but it's also when you're getting people like uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt and um, Julia Stiles, their careers are just becoming, you know, big and it's fun. It's fun to watch them younger and kind of just getting their footing. Um, but also you have more experienced actors in it, like, like Krumholtz is in it. Um, I don't know if you're, I feel like a lot of people are, are kind of divided by Krumholtz. Some people like him, some people don't. Oh, Um,
0: I like him. I like him.
1: I do too, but full disclosure—that's because when I was growing up, I had a big fat crush on Bernard the Elf. Larissa Olenek, I believe her name is. She played Alex Mack. Uh, She's super fun in it, but the number one person in that movie that needs to be addressed is Larry Miller. Uh, He does a great job as the father of uh, Julia Stiles and Larissa Olenek. He's just a fun time. I love Larry Miller and anything that he does. So to have him in a movie like this was double the fun. And yeah, this is absolutely one of my top Shakespeare adaptations.
0: Nice, nice, very good choice. So yeah. my final one, I I, <laughs> I kind of have to go with it. It seems like it 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 it's got to be done. I'm going to go with Romeo and Juliet. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with Troma. Troma Studios, the home of the Toxic Avenger and Sgt. Man, and, and uh, very kind of low class, not low class, but like low status, bad taste, humor and horror and action and violence and gore, a very New York outfit. Troma <laughs> and Juliet is pretty accurate to Romeo and Juliet, more accurate than you might expect from like Lloyd Kaufman and Troma Studios. But full of a lot of the disgusting trauma, gags, gore, uh, just bad taste jokes. It came out in 1996. It was written by James Gunn. Uh, Oh. He he used to work for trauma. That's where he got his start. And um, I can't remember who the lead is, but Juliet was, well, the male lead. Uh, Juliet was Jane Jensen, who at the time I knew as a, a singer, songwriter, a musician. She has a solo career and her first album was like, I, I really liked it a lot. So when this came out on video, like I, I had been playing her music for quite a bit. Anyway, it, it's not for everybody. I think the people listening to this show regularly will either know the movie or maybe be interested in it, but it, it is not for everybody. It's, uh, it's in very poor, poor taste at times. <laughs>
1: I'm sure I've never seen it, but I'm interested. I'd definitely give it at least one watch through. Um, so that's gonna go on the list of things I need to watch. Um maybe maybe look
0: up some screen grabs from Tromeo and Juliet before you
1: (laughs) Sure. Dip my toe in before jumping in. I get that. But my my number one pick, my favorite Shakespeare adaptation, and it's so corny. And of course everybody's gonna be like, oh yeah, no, that that's obvious. Uh, It is Romeo plus Juliet, the Baz Luhrmann movie um, with Leonardo DiCaprio and Claire Danes. My reasoning behind this being my favorite Shakespeare adaptation is it takes the dialogue from Romeo and Juliet word for word, does not change it, and yet somehow changes the entire setting just by introducing uh that boslerman flair of of color and sound and pop that you wouldn't necessarily get in a standard romeo and juliet production so as opposed to it being set in like a medieval era like post plague era uh i believe it's in italy um verona um you you get now two feuding families from miami and jamie kennedy is in it and so (laughs) is uh john leguizamo's in it and it's just it's it takes the the classic shakespeare dialogue and mixes it with this zany visual everything baslerman touches is just straight up bananas. Like there is no subtlety in Boslerman movies, but there's also not a whole lot of subtlety in Shakespeare. So when you marry the two, you kind of just get like this big bombastic version of Romeo and Juliet that you wouldn't you just would not be able to get from a stage production and you know, removing the the swords and the rapiers and and putting in, you know, handguns and and firearms and you know it also includes people of a more diverse background so it's not just these two feuding families it's these two chosen families almost in like a like a crime family sense and i don't i just i really enjoy the interpretation of it because it is the exact version of it just through a different lens
0: yeah i should rewatch that because i have not seen it since the 90s i just remember it being such a humongous cultural hit like the soundtrack i I mean i love the soundtrack of course it
1: has one of the most banging soundtracks out there (laughs) i personally think uh this is also one of if not the best leonardo dicaprio performance i've ever seen and i i i'm saying that mostly because you know and toward the end when there's a scene where he's in a field and he's giving the, the I defy you stars monologue. It is the, this movie came out when I was incredibly young. I think I saw it before I was 12. I did not know what he was talking about because none of the language was common language that I was speaking at that age, but I felt it. And to be a child and to feel that level of emotion from a performance where you just don't know what they're saying, like it really does leave an impression on you. Which is why I think this is my my number one. Um, which is you know funny because the I did have two alternates for this list because I'm that big of a Shakespeare nerd, and uh, both of them are movies from my childhood. They are they are both Disney movies.
0: We're not we're, we we don't have the time to really get into them, but go ahead. What were they?
1: The obvious one is uh a lion king based off of hamlet uh, but there was also a disney channel original movie uh based on 12th night it was called moto
0: i saw that when i was looking stuff up and i did not recognize it at all
1: i it's uh you know to to keep it brief it is about a girl whose brother is a successful motocross racer and he is injured and cannot compete in the race so she completely overhauls her appearance to race on his behalf in a sport that was not very accepting of females at the, at the time of the release
0: oh okay Interesting.
1: yeah it's very good it's it's like a tight 90 i highly recommend it if you've never seen it um, and if you have seen it, then you can probably understand where that nostalgia comes from.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe I'll check and see if it's on uh, Disney Plus. I believe it is. Oh, well, uh, I will, <laughs> I cannot promise that I will watch it, but I'll go and put it on my watch list.
1: Yeah, no worries. I Don't blame me if you don't want to. It is, at the end of the day, a Disney Channel original movie made for children between the ages of 8 and 13.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, not, not that that doesn't have some enjoyment factor for me. I can still watch kids movies. I have to watch a lot of them with my kids, but yeah, you're right. It may not be, it may not be something I'm going to. I
1: imagine kids movies are probably not something that you're watching in your leisure time when you don't have to watch kids movies.
0: No, not normally.
1: (laughs) Understandable.
0: Okay. So I think that is going to do it for us today. Corey, thank you very much for being on here. Did you have anything that you wanted to say before we take off?
1: Um, You know, the last time I was here, I was talking about a project that I was working on and I am currently working on a new project, but I'm not allowed to talk about it. So instead, I just wanted to shout out a local charity that's been doing a lot of work um, that I I really enjoy, uh, Project Q Community Center. Uh, it's a nonprofit organization that provides safe space for uh, LGBTQ plus youth. They provide free mentorship classes and workshops for folks with housing insecurities, as well as free gender affirming haircuts. Uh, they are located in the Chinatown area of downtown. Uh, and if you're not aware of them, go ahead and uh look them up they have a website available and that is just uh projectq.me M-E. so once again projectq.me uh they're good people with a great cause and I'm happy to shout them out when I get the opportunity
0: wow great no that is that is very worthwhile that is very good it is going to make my little plugs here at the end seem a little shallow but um no, thank you for that. Uh, and thank you again for coming on. It, we'll have to do this again. Absolutely, yeah. If you like this show, I mean, well, thank you very much for listening. But if you like the show, please rate, review, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We're on almost all the major podca- podcast services now. You can follow us along on Twitter and Instagram, both places. It's at Two Headed Pod. And of course, there's that Facebook page. Just Google the Incredible Two-Headed Podcast. You'll find us at a couple of different places. Anyway, everybody have a great week. We'll see you next time.